Hello, Liturgy Guys listeners. Jesse, is this episode 12 of season three? It absolutely is. You have been replaced as host, but guess what we're talking about? I don't know. What are we talking about? Sacrosanctum. Concilium. Yes, you got it. I suppose I would have known that. This is part of our continuing mission to teach the world about Vatican II, which is not a bad oh, document. And it's, it's also not boring. Excellent document if you read it properly. So here we go. Episode 12 of season three of The Liturgy Guys. Oh, wait, we have new Patreon supporters. Yes, we do. We have three new Patreon supporters. Three. They are Gretchen Brown, Philip Hayden, and Father Brian Russell. So thank you so much. And if you want to be a supporter, you can go to patreon.com slash liturgy. So without further ado. Wait, I have further ado. How many? This actually goes to support this podcast. It does. This does not go to... The what, Idiot Fund. It's actually not the Idiot Fund. It, it, whatever it is, it supports the podcast. So thank you very much. And without further ado, episode 12 of season three of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Sacrosanctum Concilium. You're still here with us, Chris, are you? Yep. Okay. Sacrosanctum Concilium. We're at paragraph 26. Okay, I just want to let you all know who are listening. Chris has just pulled out his pocket Sacrosanctum Concilium book. This is not a joke. It's a real thing. He, he just keeps it with him all the time. All right, so we have to make some things, right? The liturgical renewal starts with big principles, tells you why they're doing it. Then there's some general norms, but then there are norms drawn from two seemingly opposite poles. The North, the North pole, and the South. South Pole of liturgical conception. The first being what, Chris? Hierarchic. That sounds awfully exclusionary. And the second being, Chris? Communal. Communal. So we live in a hierarchical commune. What are you laughing at, Jesse? <laughs> Chris obviously does not want to be doing this podcast. <laughs> Did you have... He said, he said two <laughs> words so far. Hierarchic. <laughs> Why, Dennis? Liturgy. Good. I was thinking we need to laugh more like click and clack on the, the yeah. car, car talk guys. <laughs> They're funny just to listen to. Anyway. Why what, Chris? Why do you see them as... Uh, Polar opposites. Polar, yeah. Well, well, it seems like hierarchic is all about the people at the top and they're important. Mm. And communal means everybody gets a little love. It's is more democratic. Wrong? Oh yeah, democratic. Well, no. Well, I'm I'm both wrong and both right. Hierarchic. If my foot is not governed by my head, my foot is not happy. If I'm trying to walk around on my eyeballs, my eyeballs are not happy. So everything has to be in the right place, but. By being in the right place, they're all doing their job. So hierarchic, it does mean that the priests are running the show? They have the headship of the body, which they should love as their very own. Okay. So but what, el- but what else does hierarchic mean? What's hierarchy mean? It means an order of priests. Right. And people, regular old people being baptized are priests. Yeah, so it can mean both that uh, the Pope, the bishop, and the priests are in charge, but it can also mean, uh, well, you're an architectural type, so it's archa. Arche. 
and then in the root here hierarchy what's What's that mean? The order? order? Or that's like the, yeah. or, the arch, the order. Order, structure, Oh my goodness. I was smarter than Dennis. Yeah. So if you are an anarchist. You, are, you want no you're, order. You're against the order and you're against yeah. the rule. How do they ever organize themselves to be anarchists together? Though? Yeah, it's got to be a problem. That's right. You blow up something. No, you blow up something. I'm going to do what I want. Anyway. So if you're hierarchic, you're an order of hieratic mm-hmm. types. Mm-hmm. What's, a, what's, the hier- what's a hierophant? A priest. That's right. A baby right, a sacred, be- a sacred being. So uh, to be hierarchic can mean um, that uh, the priests are the rulers or the, the governors, but it all can also mean an order or rule or structure of hieratic types, which is everybody in the communal nature of the church because everybody is baptized is in the hierarchy. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Okay. Well, good. What about the communal? That's part of it. It's a community of priests. And so earlier in this uh, document, we talked about... Oh, so uh, you're saying it's all inclusive and the yeah, same Yeah, it only appears yeah. like it's contradictory, but in fact it oh. is not. Yes. Because, uh, well, on the one hand, you don't want to discount the, you know, the God-given place that uh, the priest or the bishop has in governing and leading and serving the church. It doesn't simply mean that that he's the only priest and everybody else is okay so are we talking are we talking about the people who are doing the things or are we talking about the people who are saying what we should do we're talking about the mystical body okay which Which is an organically structured priestly community is what Lumen Gentium 10 or 11 says so your head and brain has to govern your all the parts of your body but if it does it's good for everybody so your body if I may talk about your body you may okay is hierarchically arranged for the good of the whole body not just because your head is some kind of power-crazed thing that wants to be in charge. It's meant to be in charge. So what it says here is that liturgical services are not private functions. In other words, it's not just the priest's head's job, um, but it's a sacrament of unity, meaning that the people are united and ordered under their bishops. Now that, again, in the modern world, will sound kind of bad. Under, you know, hierarchically arranged under... David Fagerberg uh, used to say, hierarchy is not spelled H-I-G-H-E-R. Yes. Right? So it doesn't mean that... Uh, Although it is in a way. It is in a way, but not uh, in the way that maybe would but first strike the air. Like the air. Next Okay. <laughs> Awkward silence. All right. So the point that they're trying to make here and emphasize is that the people, the ordained priests, but I mean, the baptized priests, the regular old laity have a role in the offering of the sacrifice of Christ and offering themselves and the things they're empowered to offer, their spouses, children, whatever. And so the liturgical service actually involves them, which is what we've been talking about for this whole time we've been doing a podcast, but here it is right in Vatican II. So the whole body of the church is there and they manifest it and do it in different ways according to their rank, office, and actual participation. So, Is um, a mass that a priest celebrates by himself less efficacious or whatever because there's no uh, people with him to well, co-offer? That's what you mean by efficacious. He could I be don't, praying for effic- the world. Yeah, efficacious is the wrong word. but because uh, I think the, ru- the word you want is fruitful. Yes. Because efficacy, as far as I can yeah, tell, speaks not, of the objective character right. of the mass. Fruitfulness speaks more to... Uh, the benefit the participants Correct. receive from it. So I think you could say it's is equally efficacious. There's not more Jesus present in the Blessed Sacrament where there's a hundred full church and less mm-hmm. where there's a priest and a, and a servant. But it's an important component of the liturgies to have the people there. Sure, sure. That's why Dennis mentioned this earlier is that when we talk about 
colloquially or popularly you might talk about a private mass, but the, the, the way that the general instruction words it is mass at which only a single minister assists. So uh, a body without a head, a bunch of laity without a priest is, a headless body is not going to live, but a, but a head needs a body too. They both need each other. And mm-hmm. so uh, both priest and people, are. Th- this is what these sections of Sacrosanctum Concilium are about, is priest and people, head and body, are necessary for the integral thriving of the mystical body. Right, and it's a fuller sign, right? If the mystical body of Christ is offering the act, it's always going to be that way because the mystical body includes everybody who's on earth worshiping at that moment, the stars, the angels, the saints, all of creation. However, it's going to be signified more fully if the people are there, which is why the next one, number 28, says, Chris? Yeah, that's a good one. In liturgical celebrations, each person, minister or layman, who has an office to perform should do all of, but only, those parts which pertain to his office by the nature of the rite and the principles of the liturgy. So everybody just do your own job. Well, right. right, and don't do anybody else's. Yeah. Because what, what will happen is you will disfigure the mystical body. And, and I, I accidentally skipped 27, sorry. That's all right. Because okay. the reason that had to be said, number 28, that do what you're supposed to do and only what you're supposed to do is because 27 said, whenever there is a communal celebration uh, with the active participant, uh, participation of the faithful, this way is to be preferred. That with people there is to be preferred over a priest alone as far as possible. That's a good answer to my yeah. question. It says uh, it's preferred to a celebration that is individual and quasi-private because by nature, the liturgy is a communal act of the mystical body of, of the, the whole head and members. Yeah, well, we're seeing this theme from earlier is there's a kind of a, a, na- a, there's a nature of the liturgy, an ontology of the liturgy, a substance of the liturgy, and insofar as music or words, or rites, or people, or ministers, or vestments, or calendars manifest that ontological essence of the liturgy, then it's good. But if it obscures it, because everything for Catholic liturgy is hinges upon the sign, the symbol, and the sacrament. When those things start to signify and symbolize, what's at stake is the the reality who is Christ. So it's important that the church gather together, sacramentalize what it truly is, is a mystical body of Christ with head and members, each doing all of, but only what is belonging to them. So, you know, to walk on your hands is, is not going to make for a healthy body, et cetera. So going back to this uh, paragraph 28, which I call the stay in your lane paragraph, mm-hmm. um, is that one of the reasons why the laity should not take on the Oran's po- you know, posture or position with their hands because that is a priestly gesture? Well, I think that's uh, that would be one manifestation of, of uh, distorting this principle. Okay. So, uh, or let's say you put the priest chair in with the people. Okay, that's a mis-symbolization of this principle is that the priest stands in a different position than the rest of the people. How do you sacramentalize that? You give them a distinct chair. Uh, people Or bringing the people up in the altar during... The, sure. The, the, in the sanctuary during the consecration. Letting me read the gospel. Right. Or give the homily. Right. Or okay. having the deacon do the first reading. Or me distributing communion when there's other deacons and priests there. Mm-hmm. This is a... Uh, an, this is a confusion and abuse of this principle that each should do all of, but only those things that pertain to him or her. That's that sense to me. Words like ordinary and extraordinary minister, for instance, take uh, importance because a priest or a deacon is the ordinary minister of distribution of the Blessed Sacrament. Or an acolyte, 
or in student. Even he's yeah. an he's an extraordinary. Really? Sure. Huh. I think he'd be yeah he'd be categorized as extraordinary. Hmm. So when they used to say the Eucharistic ministers, people thought that wasn't really good enough because that's just a task. But an extraordinary minister is someone who's brought up when there's a need and an actual genuine need. So it's it doesn't mean extraordinary like wow you're so cool. It's extraordinary <laughs> like outside of the norm. If there's a reason, yeah. so you have ten thousand people at an outdoor mass or something, you might just not have enough priests. So extraordinary minister, extraordinary form. It's the same kind of idea. It's not the ordinary. Form is not the, the usual, but there are times when there's necessity for that kind of stuff. So, hey, guess what, people? You are priests, and you do priestly things, and you arrange, and you have a function, and you participate, and you're part of the mystical body, but you're not the head. So, do what you're supposed to do, nothing more, nothing less. Stay in your lane, as you say. I like that. Yeah. The priest Stay will do what lane. he's supposed to do, nothing more, nothing less. Now, in Wisconsin, the people would go <laughs> in the fast lane on the left and go slow, and the priest would parallel yeah, the middle lane that happens. all the way over here. Yeah. This happened this morning on the way. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have a name for you. What are we called? Uh, we know what that name is, and We're we can't say uh, it on this podcast. Some kind of something, yeah. Illinois tourists? No, Illinois. <laughs> okay, so servers, lectors, commentators, member of the choir have a genuine liturgical function. So the choir is not just pretty music makers waiting to you know to fill the room, but they actually have a liturgical function. They're leading this praise around the throne of God in heaven and leading the people in that praise. So what should they do? Have a sincere piety and decorum demanded by so exalted a ministry. And this also kind of goes to say the person doing, you know, the readings should not then go be the cantor and then also go. Yeah, well, how, how about this? So the introduction to the lectionary for Mass says that if there are two readings before the gospel, like on a Sunday or solemnity, mm-hmm. If possible, those two readings should be proclaimed by two different readers, rather than one reader do the first reading and the second, two different readers for each of those readings. I've literally never seen that done. Why is that? Well, that's the question. Why is that? Given what you know now, why is that? More membership of the mystical body. Uh, More active participation. No, it's definitely not that. Hit a jack. <laughs> you're out of here. That's definitely the wrong answer. <laughs> to get more, to get more people actively involved in the liturgy is not the right answer. Don't. It's because it's to have different uh, uh, leaders or, or um, lectors, readers or lectors do that more clearly manifest the diversity of the mystical body of Christ, the diversity of the one single mystical body. Right. So the and in fact even the. Uh, so you have a cantor, perhaps, at your church. But did mm-hmm. you know that in the in the tradition and in the general instruction of the Roman Missal, there's a specific ministry called psalmist? Yes. And the only thing that person to do person is supposed to do is sing the psalm between the two readings. All right, that again, different from cantor. Something I've never seen done because it's so such again, a special and important proclamation of scripture. They have a special role for that. Yeah, a person who's entirely devoted to that. But again, all these diversity of functions that the Constitution is talking about here, I think is is really an ecclesiological principle. It's certainly not to get more people pseudo-actively in participating, you know, as if offering your whole life along with Jesus uh, in the Eucharist through the hands of the priest isn't enough. You know, it's so that through these different variety of ministries, the one mystical body can truly shine through. The, it says that the clearest manifestation of the church, I mean, could we, could we say the clearest 
sacramentalization or the clearest symbolization or the the clearest signification of the church is a diocesan ceremony with at the, the cathedral with the bishop, with his priests, with his deacons, with his ministers, with his people at one altar at one Eucharist. So now you've got the full panoply of liturgical ministers, and that's they therefore can manifest in the clearest, strongest possible way that otherwise unseen reality, which is the church. And so that's why the proper use and not abuse of liturgical ministers uh, can ha- help the church become who she truly is and appear as she, what she truly is at the liturgy. Which is why number 30 says the people should be encouraged to take part by means of acclamations, responses, psalmody, antiphons, and songs, actions, gestures, and bodily attitudes. I don't you, like your bodily attitude. attitude yeah. oh, I'm going to use that one. I like it. But it's kind of a funny saying. <laughs> at mm-hmm. the proper times, they should all observe a reverent silence, it says. So irreverent? Running around bu- no, a, a reverent <laughs> silence. So that means sometimes you move, sometimes you are silent. And busy is not the same as active participation. Yeah, so earlier, number 14, it said that the active participation in, in the liturgy is the aim to be considered before all else. And now here, they're talking about how to promote that. And again, notice this has nothing about being a liturgical minister, per se, as important as those things are, as I hope we just said. But how most of the people participate is by doing ordinary, normal, beautiful, sacramental things uh, from the nave. And so the next line will say that the rubrics and the instructions to liturgical books should take into account what the people are supposed to do as well, which, you know, I gather heretofore, this was, there were only instructions for the ministers in the, shan- in the sanctuary, but not very many, if any, for the people themselves. Mm. How about that? Yeah. Are you a people, Jesse? I am a people. Imagine the, the rights, the books didn't have any provisions for you to do anything. That, uh, yeah. It's kind of like liturgy, guys. Well, I already know what I need. Yeah. <laughs> I know. That's oh, a good really, Yeah. I never know what's going to make Chris last. People, what? just listen. These two just constantly make fun of me all the time. They belittle me. You are so the you worst. Think, as soon as this is done and the equipment is off, Jesse starts yelling. Mm-hmm. He is a tyrant. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. He thinks he's we'll the head of his body. Be sure to tune in next time when the, the norms Lurgies talk about based on the didactic, that's the teaching power and pastoral nature of the liturgy. So okay. hieratic, communion, and communal, and now didactic. Didactic. Boy, what does didactic mean? Yeah, exactly. The teaching, teaching power. Oh, I will probably ask you again that same question next week. <laughs> didactic. <laughs> Chris, do you want Dennis to answer a liturgy question? Yes, I do. It's about time. <laughs> So you guys know that we love the Liturgical Institute and we love everything that we do here, but you know who else loves the Liturgical Institute? Yeah, Bishop Robert Barron. And guess what he has to say about it? Well, I've known the Liturgical Institute from the very beginning. I was at Mundelein on the faculty in 2000 when it started. I knew Monsignor Mannion very well, who was the founder. Uh, Dr. McNamara, who was with him from the beginning, I've known. We've become good friends. I've spoken many times there. I've known all the faculty members. I've known many of the students. So I, I know from the ground up what the, um, the LI does. And they introduce people into the beauty of the church's intellectual tradition and liturgical tradition. And um, I don't know in the country a better place to go to get immersed precisely in that aesthetic dimension and the intellectual than the LI. So, you know, I'm a big fan. Mail call! Mail call! Oh. 
Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, guys, this question is from Dominic. Dominic says, my question is about music at Mass. Are we obligated to sing every single verse of every single song at Mass, or is there a reason we would not do that? Thank you. Thank you, Dominic. Thank you, and God bless. Well, I do find it a bit annoying. I was at an ordination once, and they were singing a song called Sacred Silence, ironically, (laughs) and the bishop was at the chair for five verses waiting for the I bet he didn't like it either. To stop. <laughs> you should imagine, you could just imagine me friend. in that pew trying to be, not to run up and like smack the choir director. Anyway. Smack Namara. What is the answer, Christoph? This is what I think the answer is. If you go to the general instruction of the Roman Missal, this okay, is number 47. It. All it right. tells you what the whole purpose of, for example, the opening song is. It says it is to open the celebration Foster the unity of those who have been gathered, introduce their thoughts to the mystery of the liturgical time or festivity, and accompany the procession of the priest and the ministers. So it's doing a number of things. Um, When you look at another place in the general instruction, when it tells you what the uh, options are, where you can get this opening song, it lists the Roman gradual, the simple gradual, uh, another collection of psalms and antiphons, and then the fourth option is a hymn. But how these first three work, the antiphon psalmody paradigm, is you sing an antiphon. It's like the responsorial psalm. You sing an antiphon, and then you go through a psalm verse, repeat the antiphon. Psalm verse, repeat the antiphon. And so it's meant to accompany the procession. And in fact, the introduction to the simple gradual says, the entrance, offertory, and communion antiphons are sung with one verse or several verses as the circumstances suggest. Right. So as long as you are... Sometimes the psalm verses break off like halfway a sentence or the thought isn't complete. You want to complete the thought, and this is what the introduction to the graduale simplex will say. But what they have in mind is that the action is to, the action is getting to the chair, and the music accompanies that. And once the action is done, the music finishes. Now, some exceptions might be, because later we see in the general instruction, it's supposed to open the celebration and provide festivity. It wouldn't be entirely unreasonable if you sang an extra verse or something like that. Especially if it's the doxological verse at the end with the right. glory to the Father and the Son. And yeah, the or some, some songs are verse one is to God the Father, verse two is to God the Son. You don't want to stop after that verse. You want <laughs> I to never would have Holy thought Spirit. about that. Yeah, it's... it's uh, Perhaps more than you might think. Mm-hmm. Right. But I think generally the history and even what's on the books today is it's meant to accompany the priests and the ministers to their places. And after that's taken place, then the music can conceivably right. stop. The music should never interrupt the procession of the liturgy, the progression of the liturgy, either in a procession or wherever it is. The priest never waits for the music to keep going. And I was just reading about this recently for the communion antiphon or communion song. It's not supposed to start until the priest receives communion because there's some silence, you know, and then it's supposed to, to end as soon as possible after the last person receives communion. So the, the communion song is a processional song. Then you might have a second song after that in meditation or something like that. But the communion chant is supposed to finish after the last person receives communion if there's not enough verses would you just repeat some of the verses mm-hmm. you could okay. yep that happens quite frequently or you can that's not needless repetition 
No, it's keeping the music alive. And this is why a music planner would try to say, okay, we have a thousand people at mass. That means communion is going to be long. We need to be prepared mm-hmm. for something more than that. If it's a small group and a short aisle, like soon the liturgical institute, our chapel, the aisle. Yeah, we the, barely get through like two right. verses. Well, the entry door to the altar is about 25 feet. So I, I have to tell the celebrant, don't start processing in until we've repeated the first antiphon, the opening antiphon. Otherwise, we'll... By the time we do it, he's there, and there's no time for a verse. Mm-hmm. So um, we just he just waits, and so we have a little bit of singing, starts walking, and then it all finishes at the right time. So a little careful planning, but nobody wants to be held hostage by a hymn ever. Oh, yeah, that's true. Held hostage by a hymn. That is going to be the second track on our sophomore album of Chasuble and Hammer. There you go. All right, Dominic, I hope this answers your question. It answered questions I didn't even know that I had, so thank you for asking. And if you want to ask us a question, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys or... D. McAdee, I just re-downloaded my Twitter account, so it should be I operating I can't wait now. to it's find D. no McAdee, tweets. D-M-A-C-A-D-E-E, D. McAdee. Chris, what's your Twitter account? All what's right. your, what's your uh, Snapchat? No. What do you, what's your name on the gram? Don't. All right. What? Instagram. <laughs> you are way behind. Yes. <laughs> I don't even think it's worth trying to catch up. I think you're right. <laughs> All right. And he likes it that way. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you and God, God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.